stay here. But uh, John chapter 14 will be there in just a few moments. We begin by looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We saw, as the Old Testament so often furnishes us with our glossary, our understanding of various terms and various ideas, that it is natural for us, if we're to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to turn first to the pages of the Old Testament and see how he operated in that age. And we saw that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament age was a creating spirit. He was present at creation, the Spirit of God brooding upon the face of the earth, the waters rather, and then it was God's Spirit being breathed into this mound of dirt that gave the man Adam his life. He became a living soul as the Spirit of God inspired him. Spiration is to breathe, to inspire, to breathe in to him. Then we saw in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God oftentimes when it came brought power. Samson is the great example of that, walking along the road, minding his own business when a lion hops out. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson and he rips that lion to shreds like you would a kid goat. Gideon blows a trumpet. The Spirit of God anoints him and 32,000 Israelites respond to his call. There is power when the Holy Spirit comes. There is also enlightenment. We saw that the primitive word for prophet was seer, S-W-E-R. A seer, the scripture tells us, was the first name by which these men were called. Later called prophet, prophets, the modern term, the modern translation, if you will. Of course, we're dealing with thousand-year-old terms, you understand. But originally... He was a seer, a man who saw things by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, when it came upon a man, not only brought power, but it brought enlightenment. It brought knowledge and understanding. It opened his mind, his heart, to the things of God. Balaam, even though he was a false prophet, the Spirit of God came upon him, the true Spirit of God. And he describes himself as the man who saw. Who saw. And then we looked... In John chapter 7, at this rather amazing passage, right in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, as water is being poured out of these big vessels on the altar, Jesus stands and cries, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And John gives us a little word of commentary there in the verse that follows, that he spake this of the Holy Spirit, which they who believe on him should receive, but... The Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that is what we dealt with last Sunday. There is a sense, although the Spirit of God was certainly present in the Old Testament age, and though He was certainly active in the Old Testament age, there was a sense in which you could say that He had not come at all. And that is the sense in which John speaks. There's a sense in which he's coming in such a way, in such a magnitude, that it's like he wasn't here at all previous to that. And of course, he is speaking of the fact that the age of Messiah, the Messianic age, was to be an age characterized, as the Old Testament prophets put it, as God pouring out water on dry ground. Pouring out His Spirit upon His people. That what had been in the Old Testament day, the rare, the unusual, sporadic, 
spasmodic experience was to be in the New Testament age the norm, the average, the usual. That God was about to pour out His Spirit not on one or two, not on just a few prophets or a few priests or maybe someone else here or there, a Samson or a Gideon, but God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh, all of His children, from the old men to the young ladies. And so there is an age that is dawning, the age in which you and I live that is to be characterized by the fact that it is the age of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want us to go a little further in our study by looking at a section of Scripture known as the last discourse of our Lord. It is a discourse. It is a discussion. And it is a long discussion. In fact, it is the longest section of Scripture that we have of one interrupted, uninterrupted conversation that our Lord has with His disciples in the entire Gospel record. It starts back in John chapter 13 and it ends in John chapter 17. Five chapters worth of a conversation, of a discussion that began in the upper room the last night of our Lord's earthly ministry with His disciples and it finally ended as they are out in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are in the room up there. Then a little while later He says, let us go and they leave the room and they're on their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is a conversation that took place over the course of, say, an hour or two that John has recorded. Five chapters of the Gospel of John. John only has 21 chapters in it. Five chapters, a fourth of the Gospel of John, took place in about a two-hour time frame. So you see, John is not interested in giving you a synopsis of the life of Christ. That had already been done with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What he is interested in doing is giving us some insider information, some things that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, things that took place particularly that last evening when our Lord was with His disciples. There are several things He tells them. The most important thing, He tells them that He's going away. Some dozen times He tells them that He's leaving. They don't understand. I think the evidence is pretty clear that in their minds, they understand him to be saying that things have gotten a little hot, a little dangerous here in Jerusalem, so it's time for him to sort of hide out for a while. Go out to the wilderness, perhaps like David, find him a cave somewhere and hold up. Let things sort of cool down a little bit. Because that's how they're thinking. When he tells them, I'm going away and you can't come, Peter pipes up and says, Lord, why can't I? I want to go. I want to come. I'm willing to die for you. Don't tell me it's too dangerous. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. He's thinking in terms of Jesus going out somewhere and hiding. And he doesn't understand why he can't go. And so Jesus says, you'll come later, but you can't go now. And then old Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he pipes up, true to form, and says, Lord, how can we come later if we don't know the way? We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. How can we come to you later? And Jesus says, I'm the way. You know the way, the way you know. I am the way, the truth and the life. You understand, Jesus is talking about going to heaven and they're thinking about him hiding out out here in the desert. A little later, Jesus says that I will manifest myself to you, but I will not manifest myself to the world. And Judas, the other Judas, not Iscariot, pipes up and says, Now how is that, Lord? How are you going to show yourself to us and not into the Lord, to the world? We're going to have some sort of secret signal, some little... Little Orphan Annie decoder ring. Dating myself here. 
you know, is there some sort of secret message that you're going to give us or secret sign? How will you show yourself to us and not to everybody? You see, their questions sort of betray their understanding at this point. And he keeps telling them, I'm going away. And finally, at the very end, in the end of chapter 16, he says, I am I came from the Father into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and I'm going back to the Father. And they say, oh yeah, now we got it. And they still didn't get it. So there is that understanding. That is the central theme is I am about to go away. And he is preparing them for his imminent departure. But in that context, as he's telling them that he's about to leave them, he is also telling them that someone else is coming. Let's read it here in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. There are some five statements that our Lord makes about the coming of this one he calls here the comforter. John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. He declares that he is going to pray. He is going to ask the Father for something. I always like it when our Lord asks the Father for something. Because you can be sure he's going to get what he asked for. I may not get what I asked for. I don't always pray in accordance with the will of God. But Jesus said, the Father always hears me. His prayers are always answered. And notice he has not yet prayed, but he's going to. He will pray to the Father that the Father send them this one known as the Comforter. The Comforter. I don't know what version you may be reading out of this morning. If you're reading out of the King James, it'll say Comforter. The New King James will say Helper. Some other translations use the term Advocate. Some translations use the term Intercessor. It is the Greek word parakletos or paraclete. We transliterate it. I will send you the paraclete. Uh, Greek preposition para means alongside. We use that a paralegal works alongside an attorney. A para, what is the paraphysician? Paramedic works alongside the medical professional. Kletos is the idea to call, and so it is someone who is called alongside. Now that doesn't give us a lot of information, does it? To call this person, the paraclete, one called alongside, still doesn't quite give us a, a handle on what we're talking about here. May I point out that the word is also used... In John is the only one that uses this term, and he uses it also not only here in the Gospel of John, but over in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, I'll quote it for you, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That word translated advocate is this same word, paraclete, parakletos, 
We have a paraclete. We have an advocate with the Father. The whole idea there is that Jesus is our representative. He is our attorney. He is representing us before God so that if we sin, we have someone who is taking our side with the Father, someone who is pleading the merits of His own blood before the very throne of God, receiving for us, you see, forgiveness, acceptance, that we are not immediately cast out of the presence of God when we sin because we have this, what would you call it? Attorney, lawyer. We have a lawyer representing us. I hate to use the word lawyer. That's such a bad connotation in our day. But that's the idea. We have someone who's taking our side before the very throne of God in the heavens. And so the idea is this, that as Jesus is away from us, as he is standing before the throne of God in heaven, representing us there, he has sent another representative to take his place here. Now, I use that term, take his place, very reservedly. But there is a sense in what Jesus is saying here that we're to understand that the Holy Spirit is one who has come to fulfill the role that to this point Jesus himself has fulfilled. Several things right here in our text tell us that. Look at verse 16. I will pray the Father and he shall give you, note the word, another, another comforter. The point is, you have had a comforter. You have had me as your comforter. But now I'm going and I will pray to the Father. He'll send you another comforter. So you get the idea that whoever this is that's coming is going to take the place of Jesus as far as the role of advocate as comforter. Then notice in verse 17, the last statement of verse 17, ye know him for he dwelleth with you. And shall be in you. Now he's going, I I suppose, to no one's great surprise. He identifies the comforter as the Holy Spirit. Anybody shocked? You all know that. Okay. By the way, that's not a given. The Muslims claim that the comforter is Muhammad. And Jesus here is predicting the rise of Muhammad. How in the world you could possibly read this text and get that this is Muhammad is beyond my wildest imagination. But at any rate, that is what the Muslims claim. Notice that Jesus is saying is that this comforter is not completely unknown to them, that he has been with them, but he will be in them. And of course, that refers to the fact that Jesus himself is the Messiah. The word Messiah meaning anointed one. He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, John earlier makes reference in John 3 to the fact that God gives not the Spirit to him, that is the Messiah, by measure. It infers that everybody else gets a dose of the Spirit, but the Son gets the whole load. There is no measuring the amount of the Spirit of God that has been placed upon the Son of God. He has Him without limit, without measure. And so the disciples, as Jesus is saying here, are not completely unacquainted with the Holy Spirit's work. He's been with them all this time as Christ their Lord has been with them. But now something new is going to happen. This one who has been with them shall now be in them. 
And how Muhammad could fulfill that is beyond me, but that's another story. And then, verse 18, notice he says, I will not leave you comfortless. Uh, in some of your, if you have a more modern translation, it may read orphaned, because that is literally the meaning of the word here. I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. Somehow, mysteriously, in the coming of the Comforter, Jesus himself is coming to them, and he's coming back to them, and he's not going to abandon them. He will not leave them as orphaned, but he will come to them in the coming of this person. So, do you understand what's going on here? That I, I think the best word in our modern vernacular to translate this word Comforter is probably the word surrogate. Surrogate. We have become familiar with that word in later years. The idea of surrogate mothers (laughs) carrying the child of someone else to completion. That type of idea. That is the idea. And why I like the word surrogate is because it tends to imply this idea of parenthood. That what Jesus is saying is I have been your sponsor. I have been your advocate. I've been your helper. But I'm leaving But I'm not going to abandon you totally. I will send another surrogate, another sponsor, someone else to be your heifer, somebody to take over the role of what I have been doing with you. Your training, as he's going to say later, is not complete. I've been your coach. I struggled with the idea of using the word coach because that certainly implies the idea of being under someone's tutelage, under someone's discipline. I've been your coach. I've been training you. I've been your trainer. I've been disciplining you, placing you under my discipline. But I'm leaving, but I'm sending someone else to continue that process. And that someone else is identified as the parakletos, the comforter, the spirit of truth. Notice clearly that the spirit here is not a thing, but a person. A person who has the attributes of personality, rationality, able to teach, will, choice, decision, so forth, emotion, you can grieve the Spirit. That the Spirit of God is not a nebulous thing, but in fact a person, the third person of the Trinity Himself, will come and take the place of Christ in the role of comforter. Now that's the first thing that He tells us here. He will come in a subservient role. He comes at the bequest of Christ. Christ will pray the Father. And he comes to take over the work that Christ has been doing as a servant to Christ himself. Now, as we go into the second passage where Jesus deals with this subject, and that's in John chapter 14, verse 25, I can't stress that last point. Too strongly. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes from the Father at the request of God the Son, comes in the name of Christ. And by that meaning, just as you would send a servant out, say, in the name of Caesar, to perform a task for Caesar, the Holy Spirit coming in the name of Christ comes as subservient to Christ. He does not come in his own name. He comes in the name of Christ. You understand what that implies? 
That the Holy Spirit then is subservient both to the Son and to the Father. Even as Jesus did not come into the world, he said, to do his own will, but the will of his Father. So the Holy Spirit now comes not to do his own will, but the will of the Son, who is doing the will of the Father. And that needs to be made very clear. Notice in John 14, verse 25 through 26. Jesus says, these things... Have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you? But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, not Muhammad, but the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, there's that idea, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Notice that he speaks of the Spirit as being their teacher their teacher to impress upon them truth. And particularly here, it is the truth that they have already heard. That the Spirit is to bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus has in fact spoken to them. Now that's very important. Uh, Any of you read about the so-called Jesus Seminar? A group of so-called scholars who got together to decide, it's amazing the arrogance of man, to decide what Jesus actually said. Said the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are obviously untrustworthy. So we have set ourselves up as a committee, basically, to decide what Jesus actually said. And if you listen to them, Jesus didn't say a whole lot. Didn't say hardly anything. In fact, in fact, they say most of the New Testament, most of the gospel records is simply manufactured by his disciples. It's the tales that grew up about Jesus, the legends, the myths, the stories that grew up about him and were later written down. But Jesus himself only said a few little small pithy statements, according to them. According to the Apostle John, that's not the case. And, and one of the things that raises this theory is the fact that John's gospel, as far as we know, as best we can tell, was probably written 50 or 60 years after the fact. After the night that is being described here, it's another 50 years before John will in fact write these things down. And so naturally, the question arises, well, how do we have any confidence that 50 years later, John remembers what Jesus said that night? I don't know about you, I can hardly remember what happened yesterday. Any discussion I had with my wife yesterday, which I have thrown up at me quite often, I don't remember what was said, you know. I don't remember, don't you remember us talking? No, I don't remember us talking about that. I have trouble remembering yesterday. Here John is recalling actual conversations, words that took place some 50 years earlier. How do we have any confidence whatsoever that he knew what he was talking about? Well, here John gives you the reason. Is that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that the Holy Spirit would do was bring to the mind of the apostles the words of Jesus. Bring these things to their remembrance so that they would never, ever forget what Jesus had uttered, what he had said. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. They were earwitnesses. And the Holy Spirit will enable them to understand and remember the things that they have been taught. I want you to realize that much of what is said in this last discourse, in these chapters, 
is said directly to the twelve, to, well, eleven. Judas is absent, of course. But to the disciples themselves. Now I realize that oftentimes we lift these verses out of context and we apply them in a broader sense, and that's not completely wrong to do. But let us ever remember that these are words that are spoken directly to the apostles. They are the ones who are going to write these books. How do we know Matthew gave us what's right? How do we know John remembered correctly? And here we have the key that John himself testifies that it will be the work of the Spirit of God to bring to their remembrance what they have been taught. And so we can have confidence that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not a series of compilations of legends and myths that grew out about Jesus. They are exactly what they purport themselves to be, eyewitness accounts, independent eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what they claim to be. All the evidence points to the fact that's exactly what they are. And then in chapter 15, we find the third statement about the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 26, John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now, to testify is a legal term. Just like we use it that way to testify in court. It is to give what we would call eyewitness testimony. It is to bear witness. Uh, Kenny, just a few moments ago, read out of 1 John 5 where he says this is the record that God has given of his son. The word record there in Greek is the same word here. It's testimony. It's the record, the testimony that God has given of his son. Sometimes translated by the word testimony, witness, record. All the same word in Greek. To bear witness of Christ is to give testimony concerning him. And may I point out. Oh, I hope I don't get myself in hot water here. You listen to me closely. When the Bible uses the word witness, record, testimony, it is speaking of firsthand eyewitness testimony. you will find many duties placed upon Christians. One duty you will not find ever mentioned in the New Testament is to go witnessing. You know why? Because you can't. You weren't there. You didn't see it with your own eyes. It was the apostles who were commanded to bear Witness. They saw it with their own eyes. Now, please don't misunderstand me. You say, well, you mean we shouldn't go evangelize? No, I don't mean that. I'm saying in the technical sense that the gospel, I'm not going to fall out with you if you say I witnessed to my friend last night. Okay. Put up the peace sign here. I'm just saying technically. You and I cannot witness of Christ because we weren't there. We can't bear witness to his death. We didn't see it. We can't bear witness to the empty tomb. We didn't see it with our eyes. These men did. That is the unique position that the apostles have. They bridged the gap between those who believe because they saw and those like you and I who believe because, who have never seen. We have believed their witness 
Their witness, because it is, as later on in the passage that Kenny read, it is the very witness of God. It is the testimony that God gave of his son through these men. That's what the New Testament is, folks. It's the witness of the apostles. It's their testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason, my friend, that sola scriptura, one of the battle cries of the Reformation, rested upon this more foundation, this more deeper foundation, that the gospel that we believe is the gospel that once and for all was delivered to the saints in the days of the apostles. You who have been in the Jude study on Sunday morning, y'all ought to remember that verse. We are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Once and for all. We're not looking for new gospel. We're not looking for new revelation. I don't care if Kenneth Copeland gets up and prophesies and his wife writes it down and reads it to you. There are no new scriptures being written. It is the testimony of the apostles that has produced for us the witness That is the foundation of our faith. Now, certainly you and I can testify, bear witness to the change that has happened in our life. Our life is a witness before the eyes of others. You're either witnessing for Christ or against him by the way you live, by the way you conduct yourselves. But to the basic facts of the gospel, that's the role of the apostles. And my friend, there are no apostles Unless you can show me somebody 2,000 years old who was alive and saw those things, there's no one qualified to be an apostle. Notice here in verse 27, he says, you, uh, did I ever read the text? I get wound up sometimes and never even realize. Verse, chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. The Comforter, when he's come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye He's talking to the disciples. Ye also shall bear witness of me because ye have been with me from the beginning. You are qualified to bear witness of me because you were with me from the very beginning of my ministry. You remember when the disciples got together after Judas had hanged himself? And they said, we need to pick somebody else to fulfill this scripture back here in the Old Testament. We need to pick somebody to replace Judas. Trust me, I'm not. The baptism of John till the day that Jesus was taken up out of our sight. Someone who was an eyewitness to that entire event. And they had several to choose from, notice. And they chose Matthias to take the place of Judas. But notice that it is that qualification. Jesus is talking to men who have been with him day in and day out since the beginning of his ministry, since his baptism in the waters of Jordan, till the day that he ascended up into heaven. You are to bear witness of what you have seen and what you have heard. But you're not alone in this witness because I'm going to send you the comforter to bear Witness, And in fact, notice how it's stated here. It's almost as if your witness is secondary to his. I'm going to send you the comforter and he's going to bear witness to me. And oh yeah, by the way, you'll bear witness too. Your witness will be secondary to his witness. Oh, how true that is. So one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to bear testimony, to bear witness, to empower the apostolic witness, if you will. Of Jesus Christ. And then. John 16. 
the fourth statement. This is the most amazing one. John 16, verse 12. I marvel every time I read it. John 16, verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall. I got the wrong text. It's verse 7. Let's back up a few verses. That was the last one. Maybe we can do the last one first. Be scriptural here. Back up. Verse 7. I've got this new Bible, you see, and I'm still finding my way around. John 16, verse 7. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. That is mind-boggling. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Oh, what an insightful thing here. What what knowledge Christ is giving to us. It is expedient, he says to his disciples, for you that I go away. Has the full impact of that hit you? It's better for you that I leave you. And our minds just have a problem grasping that. We say, what could be better than having Jesus here with us today? In the flesh. In person. There could be nothing better than that, right? Jesus says there's a whole lot, there's something better than that. It's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, he won't come. Notice that's back to John 7. The comforter is going to come. The spirit is going to come. He's not yet given because Jesus is not yet glorified. Since Jesus has not yet left this earth, has not been enthroned in heaven, the comforter, the spirit has not yet come. And he says, there is something better for you than my actual physical presence with you. What a, what a thing. What an idea. That it is better for us that Jesus is not here physically in our midst today. You know why? Because if he was here in our midst today, he couldn't be in Mexico in the midst of our brethren there today. He couldn't be over in Europe in the midst of his people there. You see, there are limitations to Christ's earthly, fleshly ministry. When he is in Capernaum, he can't be ministering in Jerusalem. When he's in Jerusalem, he's not ministering in Capernaum. When he's in Galilee, he's not in Judea. When he's in Judea, he's not in Galilee. He is limited. And what is happening is in the departure of Christ and his ascension to the throne and his bestowing of the Holy Spirit upon his people, now he is with them wherever they are. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Wherever you go, I am with you always. What a blessing that Christ is with us today. And he's down there with our friends in Mexico today. And he's over across the ocean today. Have you ever thought about that? But, but why do we need him with us 
There is something peculiar here in this text that he's telling us. He's saying that when the Spirit is going to come, notice in verse 8, that this is the work he's going to do. He will reprove the world of sin. To reprove someone is to convict them, to convict them or convince them. He will prove his case against them of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. The idea, and I don't have time to fully unpack this, I've got to hurry here, but the idea is this, is that the world has it all wrong. The world calls right wrong and wrong right. The world calls light darkness and darkness light. Today, the world calls normal what's perverted and perverted normal. Just give you a few examples. Uh, the, the, the men in the world, they're, they're pretty good old fellows, good old boys. You know, they're not sinner, dirty, rotten, lousy sinners from the top of their head to the sole of their feet. They're good people. They need to be convicted, tried, proven to be what in fact they are. And my friend Jesus was a master at that. Oh, my friend, you might come before Christ and you might parade yourself as a righteous person. You know, you might parade your you dress up like somebody real religious, stand on the street corner, pray so everybody can see. And everybody in the world says, man, look at that religious guy. Jesus didn't buy it. He said, look at that phony. Look at that hypocrite. He took the most religious men of their day and he undressed them. He stripped off their covering, their cloak. He exposed them for who they were. He saw right through them. That's why they hated Him. He knew them better than they knew themselves. That's the amazing statement John makes at the end of chapter 2. He needed not that any testify of what was in man, for He knew all men. Oh my friend, that's scary. That's scary. To stand before someone whose eyes see right through you. And all of the fig leaves of your self-righteousness and all the phony baloney of your hypocrisy and all the cloaks and all the layers that you put on to hide your nakedness before God don't avail you a thing. He sees right through it. Oh, you talk about convicting people. You remember the day they brought him that woman caught in the act of adultery? To test him, to try him. They weren't concerned about what's right or wrong. They weren't concerned about doing the will of God. They just wanted to try to trap Jesus. Brought him that woman caught in the act of adultery and he's down on the ground writing in the dirt. Busy. You say busy doing what? Busy ignoring them. <laughs> Just scratching in the dirt. Doesn't even look up. They said, what do you, you know, Moses said stoner. What do you say? Writing in the dirt. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And they were convicted. Convicted. Oh, I tell you, he could do it. 
Who's going to do it now? Now that he's gone. Who is going to convince someone, a self-righteous, pompous, you fill in the blank, that they're actually a sinner? Who is going to display to them what righteousness looks like? They've had the presence. You want to see holiness personified? Look in the face of Jesus, the Son of God. Here's righteousness living before you, breathing. Here is the will of God being wrought out in front of your eyes. Who's going to do that now? And what Jesus is saying is that role that I have fulfilled of convicting, convincing sinners of their sin, of their need of righteousness, of their need of salvation, the Holy Spirit's going to come do it. You see, in Jesus' day, they had a lot of folks here who just thought they, they just God couldn't live without them. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if they weren't there. Literally, they thought that. They were convinced of it. They were the holy of the holies. The hyper-holies. The most righteous of the righteous. The Pharisees in that day, there was an old saying in Israel that if only two men get into heaven, one will be a scribe, one will be a Pharisee. And Jesus comes along and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you are like them, you won't make it. Because you see Jesus begin to strip away that cloak. He's about to heal that woman. Bowed, bent over, couldn't stand up. Been that way for 18 years. And they're all ready to pounce on him if he dares heal her because it's the Sabbath day. And he says, you hypocrites! You'll go out on the Sabbath day to your barn and you'll loose your donkey, your mule. And you will not let me loose this woman who's been bound this way for 18 years? You won't let your animal be bound that way for a day. Do you see what he's saying? You have mercy on animals. You have no mercy on people. You hypocrites. They jumped on him for eating with sinners. Sinners. And he tells the story of a father with two sons. One of them we know as the prodigal left Wasted his father's substance, but comes back home and is received by the father. But the older brother, you know, stands outside, fuming, fussing. Not going to go inside. He's always done what his father wanted him to do. Always. Not doing it right now, but he always has. I worked for you long and hard. I spent long, hard, hot days out there in the sun, always serving you. Gritted my teeth through every one of them, but I made it. I stuck it out. And this thy son, he goes down and wastes your money with harlots and comes back home and you embrace him. You see what Jesus is saying? This is this bunch of self-righteous, pompous, you fill in the blank. You claim to be spokesman for God. You're nothing like God. You're like the older brother sitting out here fuming and fussing because I'm receiving sinners you're nothing like your father. You see what I'm saying? He saw right through them. He stripped away their cloak. 
He exposed them and they hated him for it. And he says, that's now what the carpenter is going to come and do. That same work of conviction, that same work of proving men wrong, dead wrong. If there's one thing missing in our churches today, if there's one thing missing in my own ministry, it is that being attended with that sense of conviction of sin. Oh, I speak to those who have had some sense of it. This past week, Brother Jeff Thomas and his wife from Wales were in town and we had the opportunity to go out with them Thursday night and eat supper. And Jeff told me that in his travels, he's one of the most widely traveled, widely heard men in the Reformed Baptist circles. And uh, he said he, especially among Presbyterians, he, says, he said they generally tell him that they don't really believe in revival. They, they believe that the ordinary means of grace, and by that they mean the preaching of the Word and communion and so forth, is sufficient. It's all that we should expect. But you see, Jeff is from Wales. He, he in, not in his lifetime, but in the generation before him, they saw what happened in the Welsh Awakening of 1905. Men like Martin Lloyd-Jones were alive and they remember men coming up out of those cold mines at the end of their shift and falling on their faces out at the mouth of the mine calling upon the name of God to save them. They remember that. You have a hard time convincing that crowd that there's not such thing as revival. As there's not such thing of a remarkable moving of the Spirit of God upon an entire nation. They saw it. They remember when it was like that. You say, why do we need the Holy Spirit, my friend? Because sinners must be convicted of their sin. And I can try my best to do it. I can be prosecuting attorney. I can be, you know... I was about to say Johnny Cochran, but he's the other guy, isn't he? I can, I can be the prosecutor. I can try to make the best case I can. God's case against you, against your sin. I can hold up before your eyes the horrors, the terrors of hell. I can tell you plainly and forthright that that's where you're going. You're going to bust hell wide open. And it rolls off your back like water off a duck's back. If it is not attended... With the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the fifth thing and last thing. John 16 verse 12. Actually, I guess you call this seventh thing because we actually had it right before the fifth thing. But anyway, for the second time, John 16 verse 12. He says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. And he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. He is in essence saying that their training is incomplete. They have not yet graduated. Still in elementary school, got a lot of things that they must know and be taught. And he, their teacher, is leaving them. But not to worry. The comforter, the surrogate, 
when he comes, will guide them into all truth. He's going to reveal things to them that are not yet known, not yet revealed. There's much of what we would call the gospel that these men still don't know. The cross lays just a day away. The resurrection, three days away. The, the ascension, some 43 days away. Those great redemptive facts have not yet been unveiled, have not been attested yet by these witnesses. They have not yet seen these things with their own eyes. And more importantly, the meaning of those things has not yet been unpacked. What does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? What does it mean? That he rose from the dead. What does it mean that he sits at the right hand of the Father? It remains for the apostles in the epistles to unveil, unpack the meaning of those facts. When we were in Mexico, one of our tasks was to put a mural up on the wall. Some of you saw <clears throat> some of the photos. And Bonnie, our resident artist, uh, we took her along to uh, help with that. And John Crawford up here, uh, conveniently enough, right before we left to go to Mexico, hurt his back. That's what he said. And, and anyway, um, so John, you know, he couldn't get out there and dig like Chucky, right? How deep was that hole? About eight feet deep time y'all threw it. I mean, they were down there in the bottom of this pit with pick and shovel throwing dirt up over their heads. And John's inside, you know, Except, I think by the end of the week, John was wishing he was out there with a pick and shovel because we turned him over to Bonnie and she worked him. Every time I went in there, he's up there on a ladder. And what the deal was, John, Bonnie would sketch the outline of the logo, sort of like paint by numbers, and then tell him what color of paint to go in there and fill it in. So, I mean, John's no artist, no better than I am. Yes, Bonnie? Oh, well, I didn't know that. But at any rate, you just made some suggestions at the right moment. I understand. But anyway, I mean, you know, John was just up there basically filling in what Bonnie had sketched out. Well, my friend, that's exactly what the apostles are going to be doing through the rest of their lives. Christ has already sketched it out. It's a sketch. That's all it is. A rough sketch in the gospel record. The apostles, it will remain to them to fill it all in, to complete it. The Holy Spirit, he says, will produce that through you. And therefore, we have large areas of Christian doctrine that had not yet been touched upon. For instance, the doctrine of the church, its organization, its function, that had not been yet revealed, that remained to the apostles. But I want you to remember, never forget that when the apostles spoke of these things, and there's many examples of this, they didn't see themselves as merely given their own opinion they said, these things we command you are the commandments of Christ himself. We're giving to you his direction for how his church is to be run. It's his commandments we give to you. And let me conclude. I'm sure many of you were waiting on me to say that. Many of you have been around here for a while know that means absolutely nothing. But... Uh, let me conclude with perhaps the most important thing that said, Christ says, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He shall glorify Me. He will take of Mine and show it unto you. All that the Father has been given to Me. He will take of Mine and show it to you. I, I can't read that 
And I believe in the mind of our Lord is an Old Testament illustration. Do you remember Isaac in Abraham's old age? That Abraham gave Isaac everything. Gave him the whole farm. Whole kit and caboodle. Gave it all to Isaac. But then he sent a servant back to the land of Mesopotamia to get a bride for his son Isaac. You remember the story? You know how it worked? That servant went off into that land, found a young lady by the name of Rebecca out there watering. And that servant began to tell her that, oh, my master, he's got this son, and his son's rich. I mean, my master's a rich man. He's given everything he owns into the hands of his son. And he begins to give her gifts and gold. You know, ladies like gold. Little uh, earrings and nose rings. <laughs> well, it was. That's what he said. Give her this gold jewelry. In other words, here's some of his stuff. Let me, let me give you some of his stuff here. And they go and meet with their parents. You remember the story? He says, I was sitting here on an errand from my master. I prayed out there outside the watering hole saying, let whoever this is comes up and offers to water my camels. Let that be the one that you've, you've picked out for my master's son. And your daughter, Rebecca, she's the one. She's the one the Lord led me to. I've come to take her back with me. Do you understand what's going? He's fetching a wife. Girls, put yourself in this position. You've never laid eyes on this guy. Never seen him. And yet here is the servant giving you some of his stuff. Say, man, he's a great guy. He's rich. Here's some of his jewelry. I mean, before long, Rebecca was saying, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. You know, that sounds pretty good to me. And she took that long camel ride back to the land of Canaan. Long before she ever laid eyes on Isaac, her husband. She fell in love with him through the testimony of another. So you and I have fallen in love with He who is the Savior of our soul. And we've never seen Him. We've never laid our eyes on Him. But oh, there's this servant <laughs> who has come and He's opened our eyes. The eyes of our soul. And He's given us tokens He's told us about this one who the Father has turned everything over to Him. Everything the Father has, He's given into the hands of His Son. And He's given us little tokens of His love and of His favor. And we have fallen in love with this one who is our Savior. Oh my, without the Spirit of God, there's no hope. There's no hope. Oh, my, I've gone long. Thank you for your patience. May God bless. May God help you. Let's pray. In Christ, Father, we ask these favors. We come in His name. We come asking that His kingdom be furthered. We come asking for power to do His work, to see His work advance on this earth, to see lives claimed by the power of the Gospel. We ask, Father, for His sake, for His sake, and in His name, Amen.